And I've simply entitled this message or a few messages, Glimpses of Glory. In Christ, Glimpses of Glory. And we're going to turn to the book of Ephesians. And I've just had that sense this week as I've been preparing this message and just this morning in worship that you know, there's, there's many places we've been this year as a church. There's many journeys and seasons that many of us have been on, some good, some not so good, and everything in between. But we need those moments where we just stop and we allow the Lord to just come and lift our heads. Lift our gaze. He's the lifter of our heads and particularly, specifically in worship and whether this is for one or many of us. But I felt like there was at least one of us, perhaps many of us who have been on a race and life and faith is a race and a journey. And the picture I had was you weren't even in the race. You were off to the side wondering, was it even worth continuing? Discouraged, downtrodden ready to throw in the towel. And I just pray this morning that this would be a moment where the Lord would just lift your gaze. In the midst of whatever has been going on this week, this month, this year, this season, but that for all of us there would be a sense again of just glimpsing the glory of who Jesus is. The radical nature of the God that we worship. And that's not going to come through a good sermon. It's not even going to come through just reading passages of Scripture alone. It's going to come through the power of the Holy Spirit as the Word is proclaimed working in our hearts. So let's pray. Father, here we are, and I thank you that your presence is here. I thank you that you come not with any sense of reluctance just because you promised to come. But I I just am reminded even now of the words of Jesus when he said, If you as fallen earthly fathers, if your children ask you for a gift, you will not give them a scorpion or a snake, something evil. You will give them something good. How much more will your loving heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, give the very presence of the living God to those of us, your beloved ones, your children, as we are. So we ask, Lord, for the power and presence of the living God to be at work in our midst and our hearts. Breathe your life upon these words and may they bear fruit for your glory. We just want to see you, we want to know you, we want to love you more. And we pray these things in faith together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read a large passion of Scripture. I want to read most of chapter 1 of the letter to Ephesians. And we'll launch in from the beginning in just a moment, but I want to set it up this way. Let's just talk for a moment. Some background at times is important. What was Ephesus? Who, who is it that Paul is writing to? Ephesus was one of the great modern centers of ancient times. They were known for many things. They were a progressive intellectual society, but they were particularly known for their worship. It was a center. It was a hub for the worship of all the Greek and all the Roman gods. In fact, In Acts 19, Paul goes there, he has a two-year stint there, incredible success and inroads in terms of the proclamation, the power of the gospel at work. But eventually there's an uprising in the city, and it's from the silversmiths, this is in Acts 19, you can read by way of review and background, and they accuse Paul of diminishing the worship of the city. He's causing people, we're known throughout the region, they say, for the worship of the great goddess Artemis. And of course, really, they were just worried about the 
uh, effect that it would have on their personal business. But they, they proclaimed with great pride that they were known as a center of worship, of intellectualism. And yet Paul comes and he has such an extraordinary impact of the gospel. In fact, if, if anyone was to ask me, what does revival look like? We often talk about revival. We even pray, Lord, would you do something mighty in our city? I think biblically speaking, this is probably one of the most incredible pictures in Acts Chapter 19, as I said, records all this. But Paul comes and he preaches the gospel. And there's an extraordinary revival. People are being saved. People are being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's such extraordinary miracles. And I love that term. These are not just ordinary miracles. How many of us would be happy with ordinary miracles? Take some of those. These were extraordinary miracles to the degree that Paul's handkerchief, that his sweat cloths as he preaches. I don't use sweat cloths, but maybe one day. They were taken and they were laid on sick people and they were instantly healed and delivered and set free. There was such a move of God, it says that the whole region bought all of their magic art books and new age tarot cards and whatever the modern equivalent might be, pornography DVDs, and they had this public burning and the value was astronomical. And then there's this statement in Acts chapter 19 verse 10. I love this. And it says, and all the residents of Asia, that's the known area around where not just in the local region, but the whole district heard the word of the Lord proclaimed, both Jews and Greeks. Isn't that a wonderful picture of revival? What are we praying for in our city? Well, let's start there. That sounds good. Let's go for that. Let's, let's pray that we would see God's done it before he can do it again. We live in a city that is full of intellectual pride in so many different ways, so proud and self-assured, but God can break through with the gospel. He can do something. So that's the context, and the gospel had powerfully taken root. Paul then writes to the Ephesians, and this is the letter that we're reading now, sometimes later, perhaps 10 years, perhaps 20 years, this is further down the track without getting caught up into the specifics of when he wrote. We do know that he wrote most likely from a prison in Rome. And he's writing to these believers now, possibly even a generation removed from when he first went and proclaimed the gospel. And I want us to just grab the heart of Paul as he writes this, because I believe it'll help us in terms of grabbing a hold of what he says in chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles... We'll first of all go to chapter 1, verse 16. This is his prayer that certainly frames his reference for the first chapter, and I would suggest really largely frames his reference for the rest of this incredible letter that he writes. Verse 16, chapter 1, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my prayers, and this is his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom of revelation in the knowledge of him. And here it is in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And I love that word. Enlightened means to be completely illuminated. Crystal clear. It means to see something in all its brilliance, to not miss one aspect, one corner, to be so fully illuminated and enlightened. What are our hearts enlightened to? He says, first of all, to the hope to which he has called you. To the riches of his glorious inheritance 
in the saints. And verse 19, and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. He's saying, I do not want you to miss anything. Not one aspect, not one dimension to have the eyes of your heart so completely captivated that you'd never lose the wonder. We sung that in the last song there. Lord, let us never lose the wonder. And I think probably there's two reasons. That's the what of Paul, but two reasons behind the why. And one is simply to remind. To remind and to reassure. So we were talking actually at the men's breakfast yesterday. Simon was sharing a trip they'd recently had to New Zealand. I've never had the privilege of going to New Zealand, but he said the thing that struck him, and they've been a few times now, it's always the mountains. It's the mountains. It's the spectacular scenery. And whilst I haven't seen the New Zealand mountains, which I have heard are amazing, my wife and I saw the Switzerland mountains in a particular trip, which followed... uh, Shortly after we got married, we did a bit of traveling. We went on this bus tour of Europe called Budget Expeditions. It lived up to its name in every sense of the word. The bus broke down, the tents leaked, the air mattresses, you didn't even bother blowing them up because they were half flat by the time the night finished. It was Budget Expeditions. But we'd been traveling through the night this particular time, and it had been quite a journey to get. I forget where we were coming from. But we ended up in this pristine Swiss valley at the bottom of the Alps. And of course, it's dark when we arrived. So we got up, we pitched our leaky tent, didn't bother blowing out the mattress, lay down for a very rough night's sleep. But I woke the next morning and the first thing actually before I even looked at the tent was I heard all these little cowbells. Who's been to Switzerland and heard the little... Incredible. So you hear the little bells tinkling everywhere and I opened up the curtain And I literally thought that I'd died and gone to heaven. It was spectacular. We were in this pristine valley. There's a river through the middle. There were six or seven waterfalls. And these mountains that you can't even see the top of because you'll topple over backwards. They're that enormous. But it was breathtakingly wonderful. And we had, I think, two nights and three days just wandering around. And I am certain that my mouth was just wide open in awe and wonder the entire time. And yet it was interesting because you talk to the locals there, the people operating some of the ski lifts or in in the restaurant, you say, how do you you function when there's just this much beauty around? Like, how do you hold down a job? Aren't you just like gobsmacked? And they're like, oh, no, you know, we've got got mountains just as good around the corner. You know, we've got another lot down the road and... The thing is, and this is the point, is that it's so easy for us to lose the wonder. And I think there is this need, but there is this reality that if we really glimpsed into the glory of who God is, we would never lose the wonder. We would live and we will live, I can guarantee you, for eternity. We will be there, you and I, those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam and I were discussing an eternity to come, million years, billion years, just in awe and wonder. Can you, can you get over it? Can you get over the goodness of God? Can you get over his mercy? I mean, he died for us. This is, this is radical, the hope, the riches, his power. It's just beyond anything that the human mind can comprehend. 
And see, here's the problem. And, and, and I, I hate this about myself, but I find it so easy to be moved, to be moved in one moment by beauty, by power, by kids you know, that are suffering and struggling. And then just a few moments later, I'm worrying about what I'm going to eat for dinner or something mundane and meaningless. It's so easy to lose the wonder. So I think Paul is writing in part to the Ephesians just to remind them of the wonder of what it means to be in Christ. But I think possibly he's also writing to reassure them. You see, he was writing to a society dominated by worship, idolatry, philosophies, intellectualism, all these different things. And there's this focus throughout Ephesians, not only of the wonder, but to reassure them that the gospel still stands central. It hasn't changed in the 10, the 20 years. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. You see, sometimes, or certainly in the society we live, week after week, we hear this ongoing narrative. Christianity's dead. It's outdated. It's incoherent. It's past its use-by date. And it's worth us asking. And I pray being reassured by any shadow of a doubt that there is a matchless, unchanging message of the gospel. There's never been anything like it, and there never will be anything like it again. All of human history finds its meaning and purpose in the gospel. Every human heart finds its purpose and meaning within this panorama of the gospel. It's unchanging, it's undeniable, it's unquenchable. It's the message that we've been invited into, and it's a message that the world is in ever-increasingly desperate need to hear and to see. To see it shining through our lives. To see it bursting through. So I'm hoping that as we read just this first chapter, and the plan is that we'll spend a few weeks, that we will capture just a few glimpses. There's no way. It's, it's like standing in, and I tried this, I did attempt this, standing in a pristine Swiss valley and trying to take a photo. It's the most difficult thing on the planet. I even tried the panorama thing, but you're going up and down and then you end up, you know, it's, it just doesn't work. There's no way you can fully capture its brilliance and its beauty. That's why I'm calling it glimpses, just a few glimpses to encourage our hearts, to stir our hearts. What does it mean? If it's wonder, but of its importance. That was the prelude, not even the introduction. So let's go with the introduction now. Let's read the passage. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read it all. And then don't worry, I've got one verse for us this morning that we'll spend a little bit of time in. And then we can release you to go and enjoy your fellowship and sausages. So watch for this reality that Paul keeps coming back to in Christ, in him. So verse 3, let's pick it up from there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, where? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing. I know I say this every time, but how much is every? It's a lot, isn't it? In the heavenly places, even as he chose us, where? In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his bloods, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. A couple more verses. Bear with me. Verse 11. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. One more time, in verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Take a breath and say Amen. Amen. That's a passage, isn't it? That is a passage. And as I said, that is a panorama that we will spend eternity enjoying, celebrating, and somehow trying to take a selfie with mountains behind us in the background. But I want us to focus just on a couple of different things. This morning, one verse or two verses, verse 5 and 6, one point. In Christ, there is real meaning. There is Real meaning. I want to look next week about another reality that we find in verse 7, that in Christ we find real freedom. How many people think of church and Christians and religion and instantly you think freedom? I want to put those two together in a way that is radical and undeniable and will hopefully really help each one of us. And then finally, in verses 8 and 10, in Christ we find real purpose. We do. We're not put on this planet to live purposeless lives. We're going to talk about how it is that we know and discover and live in and rejoice in our purpose. But for this morning, I want to talk about this. In Christ, there is real meaning. See, I've been thinking about not just the what's, but the why's. We were recently away on holidays, had a great time doing lots of different things, caught up with some different people at different stages. And there was this one particular meal, we're sitting down with some people we know. And before the Lord, I, I didn't begin this, I may have finished it, but there was a discussion that was brought up about environmentalism. And I think there'd recently been an article released about the fact that uh, the planet has limited time, you might have seen that. It was quite a prominent article. And so this conversation was brought up, and these are non-believing people, and I have this problem. Pray for me, please. It is an issue. But sometimes I see a topic, and I see a debate, and even if I'm not passionate about it, and even if I have no desire to win, I just jump headfirst in there just for the thrill of the battle. Is anyone else like that? <laughs> just to do a few rounds in the ring and see how it goes. Totally pointly, fruitless discussion. Is nobody else like that? Am I totally alone? Well, I did repent afterwards, but sometimes I just can't help myself. And my wife's very gracious. She 
desperately tries to pull me back at times. And so she was glaring across the table. She was nodding on the front row. There's a few elbows like, pull out now. But it was on offer. I didn't begin it, but I did jump headlong into a very, um, let's say, animated, fruitless, pointless discussion about environmentalism. Not that it's not an important issue. It was just a fruitless discussion. And we talked politics and petroleum companies. I mean, it just went to some wonderful places that were never going to go anywhere good. And so after a while of this particular discussion, I eventually pulled myself out. And it was pointless. It was fruitless. It didn't go anywhere. But once that conversation had kind of finished, I morphed it into another direction and I said, look, I'd actually really love to know because clearly this is something that you are incredibly passionate about. We need to, this is so important. What is it in your worldview that drives your passion for this particular topic? And there was sort of a, a silence. Ah, oh, well, it just is right. It just is, it, it just is the right thing. And I say, well, okay. Well, what's right and what's wrong and, and, and what parameters are we determining right and wrong upon? And, and, and where is it that this comes from in your worldview and your perspective that this is something really valuable to fight for? Where is it? And the conversation for that point, it was sort of shut down very quickly and I think I'd lost all political capital in sort of embarking on any debate and I did want to sleep in the same bedroom as my wife that evening. So we let the conversation just diminish, left it there, didn't push it any further, although that would have been a wonderful path, I think, to go down next time. But it did get me thinking, it's amazing that it is so easy, regardless of what your worldview is, to be so passionate about something, about the what, and never have really thought about the why. Never have really examined, never thought about, well, why? What, what's actually driving this? What's the, what's the underlining meaning and purpose that's causing me to react in a particular way? And so I really think from this passage, it's worth us looking from a Christian perspective, what is the why? But not just from a Christian perspective, also from a worldly perspective. What are the different views to, to things that can motivate us. And certainly the meaning of life is one of those great philosophical debates that we could all argue about and it'd be another pointless and fruitless discussion. So I don't want to go too far down this, but I want to give us a few different perspectives on where meaning comes from. See, from a, a secularist, a modern secularist or an atheist perspective, there is a belief that life is simply a series of random events with no deeper meaning or purpose. For example, Richard Dawkins, a very prominent uh, proponent of this particular view, here's a quote from him. He says, The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And that really, if you're from a strong atheist perspective, is a very natural conclusion to halt. Sounds a little pessimistic, but often atheist philosophers, particularly from the biologist school of thought, and another example here is an American paleontologist, Stephen Jay Gould, take it one step further. He says this, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. Although this ex explanation sounds superficially troubling, it's ultimately liberating and exhilarating. 
And if you follow the line of reasoning, what he is saying is that the means for us to find meaning is actually to give up on the thought that there is meaning in the first place. Following the school of thought so far. So it's only when we give up the need to find meaning that we can be truly liberated. So these are the views that are held and defended quite publicly. The problem is, first of all, let's deal with that. For most people, including myself, these are intellectually and practically problematic views of meaning for this reason. First of all, purposelessness for most people is not in reality liberating. And if you doubt that, you can try that this week. Get up each morning, look at yourself in the mirror and try and convince yourself that there is no purpose in your life. There is no purpose in my day. There's no purpose in getting dressed and brushing my hair and see how it goes. See if it adds to your life meaning and worth. But also, there is a number of psychological research that's gone on that has concluded without any question that life and humanity needs meaning. That ultimately living with no meaning, it just doesn't work. So then... That's one view. Another view that flows on from perhaps the secular atheist view, a more postmodern view of meaning, can be summed up like this. Here's a quote from Joseph Campbell, American professor, philosopher. He says this, Life has no meaning, but each of us has meaning, and we bring it to life. It's a waste to be asking the question when you are the answer. So there's another view of meaning. One view is there is no meaning, and we should all just embrace the fact that there's no meaning and we will be ultimately liberated. The second view is this, that there is meaning, but it's not an absolute meaning. It's a relative personal meaning that you can choose and determine yourself. And certainly, we would have to say that there is a capacity for us to find meaning that we determine or create. We can find meaning out of our jobs and out of our relationships, a so-called not absolute, but personal meaning to our lives. And that does result in a sense of meaning. So yes, we can have meaning without even having God in the picture to a certain degree. But I want to contrast this, and this is where I'm heading, bear with me. I want to contrast this with what Paul is really telling the Ephesians the basis of Christian meaning is. So have a look here again. Let's read this together in verse 4. It says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved. So what Paul is saying, he's saying Christian meaning comes from this reality. Number one, we are purposed. We are created. We are predestined in love from eternity past you have value, worth, and significance. And eternity future, you will have value, worth, and significance. You have been made in the image of God. You bear His image. You've been blessed and given a gift beyond anything that you could ever deserve or earn. And as I said, my heart is here for us to just recapture some of these snapshots of this glorious message of the gospel and what we have in Christ. 
And so very quickly, I want to give us four realities that are far superior, that are far more breathtaking and incredible about a Christian perspective of meaning. And number one, if you're taking notes, is it's absolute. Number two, it's certain. Number three, it's complete. And number four, it's ultimately more satisfying. Are we tracking along all right? Let's quickly cover those off. So number one, where does our meaning come from? Is it something that we can derive or determine, something that we can create, or is it absolute? The problem with a relative meaning is that it never asks the bigger question. Just think it through. So if if you're determining your own meaning, you say, well, my meaning in life comes from my job. You say, okay, well, why does your meaning come from your job? Why is it, as I asked this particular person in the discussion, that you're so passionate about this particular cause? Well, just because it's right. Yeah, but why is it right? Well, it's right to work a job so I can have money. Well, why do you need money? Well, I need money so I can have a house and support the kids. And, but see, the problem is there is no big picture. So in essence, it reduces meaning to something that is superficial. In contrast, Christian meaning by very definition has a breadth so encompassing that it stretches from eternity past to eternity future. It encompasses and enlightens every breath and encourages the Christian to sit back and to savour every aspect and dimension and reality of life. So in reality... A relative view of meaning says you just need to think less. You need to think less. Just keep your thinking really small and limited. Whereas from a Christian perspective, it says you need to sit back. If ever you're wondering about your meaning, if ever you're questioning, if ever you're struggling, which to be honest, all we do, here's what you need to do. You don't need to look within. You don't need to limit your thinking. You just need to stand back into the vastness of the glory of God. You need to open up those tent windows again. And be captivated by the beauty and the wonder of this absolute meaning of a God. Meaning from eternity past to eternity future. Number one, it's far superior in that it is fixed and eternal, not shifting and temporal. So the problem is that if we determine our own meaning, not only is it subjective, but it's wholly depending upon our feelings. What if one day I derive a lot of meaning from my job and the next day I don't like my job so much? I get a new boss and he's difficult or something happens at work and there's difficult coat. What, what do I do then? All of a sudden my meaning has gone. It's shifting and fragile. Whereas for the Christian, our meaning is fixed, it is immovable and it is unshakable. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of whether you get a cranky boss, regardless of whether you wake up from the wrong side of the bed, regardless of whether there's good things or bad things going on in life, there is a certain and a fixed meaning that we can find. Number three, it's complete, and I'm getting through these very quickly. Track along because I want to land in a particular space. You see, if, if we're determining our own meaning, then it's limited. It's limited to circumstances and it's limited in parameters. What happens, for example, 
if you face, as we all do, trials and difficulties and tribulations. You see, there is no meaning that can be derived from a determined meaning basis. Whereas in Christ, our meaning encompasses all of life, the the suffering, the struggles, the trials. And in fact, as we view the glorious gospel, it's the difficulties of life that can be a catalyst to find greater meaning, not lesser meaning. And then finally, ultimately, it's more satisfying. It's absolute, it's certain, and it's complete, not relative, temporary, and limited. There is a meaning that we can find in life that is ultimately far more satisfying. And as I said, as I know we've very quickly done this, very, very quickly, but I have two desires in mind as we just spend this moment to perhaps pause to allow the Lord to lift up our heads. And it's to remind us of the wonder of the gospel, what it is that we have in Christ. And it's to reassure our hearts. It's to refix our gaze. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, after the passage I read about, I can all things lost for the sake of knowing Christ. And he says, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press on. For the upward call that is before me in Christ Jesus. I press on. So I want us to be able to capture this fresh perspective. And then to press on to grab a hold of all that the Lord has for us. This is the unchanging message of the gospel. A meaning that's absolute, that's certain, and that's complete. Let's just close our eyes. I want to pray for us. I know we're going a little bit over time. I don't want the sausages to burn. As I said earlier, there's an opportunity this morning for fellowship. There's an opportunity as well for you to go and have a look at the compassion table out there. But let's just give the Lord a moment in response to all that he's been doing in us and through us today. And Father, I just pray as we have already during this time, that you would come and that you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts. Lord, that there'd be no shadow, there'd be no distortion, that we would see in full clarity, in full technicolor reality, the glory of who you are and all that you've done for us. Lord, I thank you that we have in you a meaning. That from eternity past, you predestined us in your hearts. That you know the details of our lives, that you know the the seasons, the circumstances in which we were to come into this world. In order that we might know you. And Lord, what a radical reality it is that we can build our lives upon that firm foundation that's certain, that's fixed, that's immovable. It's not transient and temporal. And I pray that there would be a sense for each of us of just 
allowing you to examine not just the what's of our lives, but the why's. Why are we doing things? Where is it that we're finding our meaning from? We pray that, Lord Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen.